where we focus on God's word together. Let's ask his help as we look to his word together. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we come to the word of God, that we would treasure it rightly, that we would understand that this is your word revealed to us, and that it's meant to be a light to our path, a guide for us in this life. So we pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. We pray that you would sanctify us in your truth. Your word is truth. And we pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen. Although it's unpopular, it's an unpopular truth in many circles today, as a church family, we resolutely affirm the biblical doctrine of the sovereignty of God in salvation. God is absolutely sovereign over the salvation of men. And the prophet Jonah simply phrased it like this in Jonah 2.9. He said, salvation is of the Lord. And when we say that God is sovereign in salvation, we mean that we don't save ourselves. That God, in fact, saves us. We are the passive recipients of salvation. Although there are many places in Scripture we could turn to to see this critical doctrine or this critical truth, please open up your Bible with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10, is one of the clearest explanations that we find in our Bibles explaining how God brings salvation to man. Uh, Paul here is writing to the church in Ephesus, informing them of what God has done for them in bringing them to Christ. So Ephesians chapter 2 begins with man's role in salvation, or we might say man's contribution to his own salvation. Look with me at verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 2. Paul writes, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience, among them, we all too formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. If we ask ourselves, what did we contribute to our own salvation? These three verses inform us. We contributed sin and the consequences of sin, indulging in the flesh, spiritual delusion, uh, under the wrath of God, going about led by the prince of the power of the air, a satanic delusion. We contributed death to our salvation. We were born dead in sins, and formerly we lived as spiritual dead men because of our sins. However, this is where the grace of God intersected our lives. Verse 4 begins with these two wonderful words. But God. So we've seen what man contributes. Now we consider what God did. Look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our, tra our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So we were dead 
and God resurrected us. Is God, as if it were, reached down from heaven, put the paddles on our chest, and shocked us with spiritual life. He spiritually resurrected us. He made us alive. And because of him, through his grace, his kind favor towards us, we now live spiritually. And if we get confused and somehow think that we actively participated in this spiritual awakening, verses 8 and 9 close the door on any such notion. Look at verse 8. Well-known verse, Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. We cannot boast or brag about our salvation because we did nothing. We contributed only our sin and our deadness, but salvation is a gift from God. God wakes us up from spiritual death, and God imparts to us faith as a free gift. Faith comes from him. And as a consequence of his gift of faith, we believe. Our faith is a divine gift. Understand this, that salvation or saving faith is not a product of our own intellect. It's not a product of our own understanding. Saving faith is not something that we work up inside of ourselves. It's a gift from God. Saving faith is not a a result of all of our life experiences. It is a gift from God. Saving faith comes directly to us as unworthy sinners whom God chooses to pour out his grace upon. This is what we mean when we say that God is sovereign in salvation. We see this truth demonstrated again and again in Scripture. We see it here in Ephesians 2. We see it in chapter 1 of Ephesians We see it in John chapter 6, John chapter 10, Romans chapter 9, and many other places in Scripture. And since God is sovereign in salvation, he alone gets all the credit and glory for a sinner's salvation. Again, Ephesians 2.9 says we cannot brag about it. We cannot boast. However, since it is true that God is sovereign in salvation, we might naturally expect that the opposite also be true. Since God is sovereign or is responsible for our salvation, then God must also be responsible when a sinner rejects the gospel and receives eternal damnation. We wonder, well, is God responsible for eternal damnation? If, if God gets all the glory and all the credit for salvation, does that mean he gets all the glory and all the credit for when a sinner goes to hell for all eternity. If someone is not saved, if they are not spiritually made alive by God, then is God responsible for their lack of salvation? Since faith is a gift from God, is God responsible when someone refuses to believe? That's the question. And the answer, in short, is no. Scripture never blames God for a sinner's rejection of the gospel. Scripture always places the blame for eternal punishment at the feet of the sinner who rejects the truth. You see, man is responsible to believe the truth. Man is responsible to believe the gospel. We would say we are responsible in salvation. We are responsible. So on the other, in other words, on the last day, when men stand before a holy God and are awaiting to receive their eternal punishment in the lake of fire, there will not be a single human on that day who has any ground whatsoever to blame God. 
They will not be able to blame God. The sole responsibility of their rejection of God will rest upon their own shoulders. We see this truth in a passage we already read today. Turn back with me in your Bible to the Gospel of John, John chapter 3, and let's just focus on a few verses which we already read. John chapter 3, beginning in the well-known verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but the world might be saved through him. Look at verse 18. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe in him has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Note carefully the flow of verse 18. Those who believe in Christ escape judgment. Those who do not believe are already judged. Because they do not believe, they then remain in their judgment. Verse 19 elaborates. Look at it with me. This is the judgment. That light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed." We see here, men do not come to the light because they love darkness. They love evil. They are enslaved by their own passions. And by nature, we know that mankind is enslaved to the lusts of his flesh, his own heart's evil desires. His heart is bent toward wickedness. It's like a car that has no brakes and that's stuck in gear heading toward a cliff. So is natural man in his sin. Therefore, the natural man chooses sin over and over again to his own destruction. Man chooses his own destruction. He can't help but choose to rebel against God, which ultimately leads to eternal destruction. And so we say God is sovereign in salvation, but man is responsible. Man must believe the truth. And he must repent, repent of his sin and turn to God. However, there is a point in time after a person has repeatedly rejected the truth that God, in his wisdom, may choose to finally close the door on their opportunity to believe. God gives them over entirely to their desires. To, to gives them over to delight in their own wickedness. You see, in the face of obstinate, repeated rejection of the gospel, God will just seal their fate. He closes the window on their chance to believe, their chance of coming to Christ. And as a result of their own rejection of God, God removes the possibility of salvation from them. He hardens their heart and he gives them over to their own sinful desires. This is a very real possibility of all those who are currently rejecting Christ. Now, they can never know when that final opportunity will come, but it may come for them if they do not believe. To see this played out in Scripture, turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Turn to the right, just a few books past the book of Acts, then Romans, Romans chapter 1. And in Romans chapter 1, what we have is a description of a culture that has rejected God. And in many ways, it's comparable to our own culture today. If you wonder... 
how a people could be so in love with the things that God hates, sexual perversion, sodomy, greed, murder, murder like the killing of unborn babies. If we ask ourselves, how did we get to where we are today in our culture? Well, Romans 1 tells us, look with me at verse 18, or beginning in verse 18. It says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been, through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for the image in the form of a corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures." You see, God has unmistakably revealed himself to every person. This passage tells us that there is functionally no such thing as an atheist. Those who claim to be atheists are actually just truth suppressors. They're suppressing what they know to be true on an internal level. They're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. This passage also tells us that all men are without an excuse because God has plainly revealed himself to them through what he has created or what he has made. And as a result of habitual rejection, God then gives them over. Look at verse 24. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever on amen. So they exchanged here the truth of God for a lie. Literally, the lie. Verse 26 continues, For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own person the due penalty of their heir. Here, sexual perversion is the result of a culture given over by God. God says, you reject me long enough and I will give you the desires of your heart, the evil desires of your heart. What flows out of the heart then is just unbridled wickedness. Verse 28, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, here it is for a third time, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. So 
This is all a result of rejecting God, refusing to submit to God, refusing to honor him, refusing to accept the truth of God, and God then gives them over. So we say God is sovereign in salvation. Yes, he is sovereign of over who gets saved and who does not, but man is also responsible. Man must believe the truth. But there also comes a point when God has had enough, where rebellion and wickedness reach a tipping point, and God simply gives a person over to their sin. And this downward spiral into sin is the reality of Romans chapter 1. And surprisingly, it's also the theme, also a theme of the eschatological passage that we've been considering in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. So let's make our way back there to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 as we continue considering this theme. After three weeks of thinking extensively about future events like the rapture and the coming of the Lord and the day of the Lord and the coming of the Antichrist, this morning we examine a very present and pressing matter We might call it the pathology of perdition, how one ends up in eternal destruction. In 2 Timothy, or excuse me, 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 10 through 12, the Apostle Paul unfolds a progression that culminates in judgment for those who are persuaded by the deception of the Antichrist. And as we'll consider this passage, I think it's important for us to carefully note that Paul is not merely forecasting a future rejection of the gospel that will come when the Antichrist is on the scene. In this passage, I believe it's clear that Paul is laying out a progression of sin that culminates in judgment that is applicable for every age of human history. So to get our minds just reacquainted with this ancient letter, Follow along with me as I read, beginning in chapter 2, verse 1. Look at it with me again. Chapter 2, verse 1. Paul writes, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ that our, and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains him will do so until he's taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is the one who is coming in accordance with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence, so that they will will believe what is false, in order that all may be judged who did not believe the truth, 
but took pleasure in wickedness. It's good for us to be reminded that this entire passage, which we just read, was intended to bring comfort to this church. So in Paul, in a pastoral care, was writing to them to clear up the confusion that was going on in their midst. They had been deceived into believing that they were already living through the day of the Lord and that they were suffering the judgment of God. This ancient church was suffering ongoing persecution and social harassment from the Jews there in Thessalonica. And it seems that the church was tempted, was tempted to interpret this persecution as divine punishment, as judgment from God. But Paul, wanting to correct this error that they had believed, he informs them that they are certainly not in the day of the Lord. He says, because the apostasy has not come, and nor had the man of lawlessness been revealed. But later, in the, in the later verses of this section, Paul focuses on the type of people that will succumb to this deception that the man of lawlessness will provide. And, and interestingly, Paul here, he stops using the future tense, and he shifts to speaking in the past and present tense. Verses 10 to 12 most certainly, most certainly will apply to those who are living on the day that the man of lawlessness is revealed and those who will fall prey to his deception. But I also think it applies to our present day and present day rejectors of the gospel. Ultimately, I think there are two reasons why Paul transitions from the future tense to the present tense here in these three verses. First, Again, I think Paul is trying to comfort this church in their affliction. And he's doing so by informing them of what will come of their persecutors. Paul knew it would be helpful for them to be aware of what God thought about those who were actively persecuting them. So I think in a roundabout way, Paul is comforting them here. Secondly, I think the Holy Spirit desired that the church in every age would be fully aware of the progression that leads to eternal destruction. He wants us to understand how this progression unfolds. And so my goal for today is that I want to bring this futuristic passage into the present. I want you to apply this to your present life today. I want you to apply it to the way that you think about salvation and the way that you think about conversion and evangelism, and also to the way you think about sin and judgment and how a person gets there. So let this passage of Scripture affect your everyday outlook on life. We might say, let this passage affect your worldview. So with that in mind, as we, be, so with that in mind, we find in verses 10 through 12 really a three-step progression on the path to perdition, a three-step progression that culminates in eternal destruction. The first step on the way to this perdition is this. I'm calling it a past rejection of the gospel, a past rejection of the gospel. We'll consider verse 10, but let's get a running start from verse 8. It says this, look at it with me in your own Bible. Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming, 
whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. So in the future, the man of lawlessness will come in various kinds of satanic, empowered, false signs and wonders. And he will deceive in such a way that leads people into a sinful lifestyle. I think that's how we should understand that phrase, deception of unrighteousness. It's a deception that produces unrighteousness. The Antichrist will entice people towards sin. The future man of lawlessness or the Antichrist will deceive others and in so doing is going to encourage them towards a sinful lifestyle, towards evil, toward unrighteousness. And this is all directed upon those who perish, the passage says. Or we might translate this as those who are perishing. This exact phrase is found three times in the New Testament. And Paul writes, it, writes this phrase twice in 2 Corinthians. I'll read them to you. 2 Corinthians 2.15, it says, For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. And then in chapter 4, verse 3, he writes, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. And I think it would be completely justified to translate 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 10 the same way. So we'd render it this, like this then. And with all the deception of wickedness to those who are perishing because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Again, note Paul is not using the future tense here. He could have said, he could have been referring to all those who will perish. But it's in the present tense. He's referring to those who are currently in the process of going to eternal damnation or who are eternally perishing. They're currently on the way to perdition. I think this makes sense in light of verse 7 where it says that the spirit of lawlessness is already at work in the world. In 2 Corinthians 2.15, those who are perishing are the exact opposite of those who are actively being saved. And I think it's the true, that's true here as well. There's really only two paths one can be on. There's the path that leads to eternal salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ, and then there's the path that leads to eternal damnation, eternal destruction. And you are either on one of those two paths. There's no middle ground. And Paul informs us regarding how they got on this road to eternal destruction. And that's in the final half of verse 10. They are currently perishing because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. So for those who are perishing... The reason that they are perishing is not because of God's influence in their life and not because of God's sovereignty messing with their human will. It's not because of that, nor is it because of Satan's influence on their life. Instead, the blame falls upon them. They are on the road to eternal perishing because they did not receive the love of the truth. It's their own misconduct. So we say, well, what is this truth that is being referred to here. What, what is the truth? Well, I don't believe it's truth in a vague philosophical sense. And nor is it referring just to the truth of God's existence or something like that. 
I believe this refers very specifically to the truth of the gospel. You might naturally assume that, but let me just demonstrate that to you in maybe three ways. First, Paul uses this word truth commonly to refer to the gospel. Just as one example, I'll read to you Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. It says this, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. In this verse, Paul explains that the the message of truth is the gospel of your salvation in the way that he words that phrase. So Paul commonly uses the word truth for the gospel. Secondly, we know that Paul is referring to the gospel here because in 1 Thessalonians, Paul's first letter, Paul has twice used this word receive to refer to the church's reception of the gospel. In 1 Thessalonians 1.6, he talks of them receiving the word in much tribulation and joy. And then in chapter 2, verse 13, he says, For this reason we constantly thank God that you receive the word of God from us as if it were the word of God, which it actually is. So he's talking about receiving the word of God as synonymous with receiving the gospel. So again, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 10, when he says to receiving the truth, he's talking about receiving the gospel. And finally, we know this is true because we know that it's the truth of the gospel that leads to salvation. This is what Paul says in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for in it is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel, believing the gospel, leads to salvation. So that's what these people failed to do. They failed to receive the love of the truth so as to come to salvation. And if they would have, they would have been saved. But the most noteworthy aspect, I think, of verse 10 has to be the fact that Paul refers here to receiving the love of the truth. Receiving the love of the truth. You see, it's one thing to know the truth, but evidently, according to Paul, it's another different thing entirely For someone to love the truth. Salvation comes to those who love the truth. The love of the gospel, that is a love that goes merely beyond just assenting to facts or acknowledging certain historical things. This is a love of the truth that's far greater than just a mere intellectual assent or a commitment to the facts of the gospel. Such a love for the gospel causes one to be personally and fully devoted to the truth. Different English translations of our Bible writes this phrase differently. For example, the Net Bible reads, they perish because they found no place in their hearts for the truth so as to be saved. Or the NIV says, they perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Love of the truth requires admiration. It it involves both our head and our heart. It's It's a love for the truth. Loving the truth or loving the gospel is ultimately the same thing as we'd say as believing the gospel. But there is a difference from just merely assenting to facts. And I think this point is really sorely needed in our culture today. There is so much superficial understandings of the gospel today. So many churches are are filled with just superficial preachings of Christ in the gospel. 
You know, it's just, there's so much confusion around the nature of what it means to be a Christian. It's often common for someone to assume that one becomes a Christian if they just mentally assent to a, a series of facts. You know, typically in evangelism, the conversation goes like this. Do you agree that you're a sinner? Well, well yeah, I, I, I'll concede that. Well, well, do you agree that Jesus loves sinners? Well, yes, that's great. I'm glad Jesus loves sinners. Do you agree that Jesus died for sinners? Well, that's, yes, I, I think Jesus died for sinners. Well, will you accept Jesus into your heart? Oh, yes, I'll, I'll do that. I'll pray that. I'll, I'll say those words. Okay, great. You're a Christian. You're in. But we'd say, but do they love the truth? In their heart, do they have affections for Christ? They understand that they deserve hell and that God sent his son to die for them. Does it resonate in their heart? Do they love the truth? You see, I believe a love for the gospel will necessarily be evident in your life. Here are some simple indicators that I just thought of, of a love for the truth of the gospel. If you love the truth of the gospel, you'll study the gospel. Meaning you'll want to think about it. You'll, you'll think about the dynamics of how Christ has saved you. Secondly, if you love the truth of the gospel, you'll talk about it. It'll be easy for you to talk with others about how we got saved. You, you'll even find enjoyment in thinking through and talking with others about how you were saved. And thirdly, another indicator of love for the truth of the gospel is that it brings joy to your heart to sing about it. When we sing the truths of the gospel, your heart is lifted. Fourth, if you have a love for the gospel, you'll preach it. Meaning not, not that you'll get in a pulpit like this, but that you'll open up with your neighbor. You'll share with everyone you can about Christ. You'll want to express the gospel that you so love to others. And finally, if you love the gospel, you'll pray that others will receive it. You'll pray that God will open their heart to believe the gospel. These are all indicators of one who has loved and has received the love of the truth. You see, if you never think about the gospel, if you never talk with other Christians about the gospel, if, you're, if your heart is unmoved when you sing about the gospel, if you never share it and you never pray for anyone else to believe it, then I would encourage you to reconsider if you're truly saved. Have you been born again? Have you received the love of the truth? Or are you just pretending? To be a Christian means that you love the truth of the gospel. You celebrate it. It never gets old. It's precious, to you. It's precious towards you. I was thinking about the, the final line in Jesus paid it all, or the final verse. The author writes, when, I stand before the, when, when before the throne I stand in him complete. He's saying, on that day when our Savior comes in a glorified body and I stand before the throne, there the author writes, my lips shall still repeat this simple line. Here he is, glorified body, repeating this truth. Jesus died my soul to save. You see, that's what the Christian longs to repeat. He just marvels in the fact that God would be so gracious to sinners. He, he therefore loves the gospel. And again, it's my conviction today that there are many superficial, false Christians today who fill churches, but who have no love for the truth. No love for the gospel. You see, true Christians love the gospel. Again, note that verse 10 is in the past tense. Those who are perishing did not receive the love of the truth. I think Paul here has his eye 
on the Jews in Thessalonica who heard Paul came and preached to them, but they rejected his preaching. I think that's who Paul specifically has in mind as he writes this letter to this church. But Paul is showing where those evildoers were headed. So we've seen this past rejection of the gospel. That's the first step. And now we come to step two in the progression on this road to perdition. And step two is this. It's a, it's a present delusion. A present delusion. Look at verse 11 with me again. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false. Uh, this verse obviously is closely connected with the previous one. Uh, the outcome of their refusal to welcome the truth is that God gives them something. God gifts them with something. He, he sends it to them. Many versions put this word send in the future tense, will send, but the original is in the present tense. At times, the present tense can be used with a future nuance, but I don't think that's the case here. So, so because of their rejection of the truth and their distaste for the gospel, God sends them a deluding influence, literally a work of delusion. Uh, this first word, work, always refers to, uh, to the activity of a transcendent being. Usually it refers to God. Thus, some versions of our English Bibles refer to this as a strong delusion, almost like a divine delusion. And I think this is just startling if we consider this. God is sending them confusion. He's deluding them. God's the actor here. He's the sender of this confusion. He hides the truth from those who have rejected the gospel as a present judgment for their rejection of the truth. He closes the door. He veils the truth for them. We'd say this is not a capricious act of a, of a divine demagogue. This is the cause and effect relationship of those who reject the gospel. You reject the loss, gospel long enough, this is what you get. God's patience has a limit. There's a point when God says enough is enough, and he gives them over. He sends them a deluding influence so that they would believe what is false. Again, that's a present tense, so that they, will, so that they believe what is false. And so the purpose of this divine act of judgment in which God sends this work of delusion upon them is to really promote them on their way to believing their lie. Literally, they believe the lie, the lie. They have chose to reject the truth, and so God gives them over to the lie. And this is not a falsehood in general. I believe this is a, a very specific lie. This, is, this lie is the opposite of the truth. And the truth in this passage is the gospel. So the lie is believing that the gospel is false or rejecting the gospel. In, in Romans 1, we find a very similar statement. Verse 25 says, For they exchanged the truth of God for the lie. Again, it's a definite article, the lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. So when this concept is referred to in Romans 1 or 2 Thessalonians 2, in neither passage, interestingly, do we find a timeline for how God acts here or when he does this. It's unclear how much rejection of the truth is really acceptable to God. How much will he tolerate before God will step in and say, enough is enough. You've lost your last opportunity. And ultimately, we can never really know when someone has reached their last opportunity. But for all unbelievers, this is true. 
they will have a moment in life when they've heard the gospel for the last time and, and they won't get another opportunity. And that'll be it. And God closes the door and they die without Christ. So this is ultimately true for every unbeliever who rejects God. So the time is up to him when he closes the doors, completely up to his sovereign will. We can't know it. We'll never know it. All we're called to do is preach Christ, but we know that there'll be a time when someone's rejection is final and God says no more. There is a threshold. There's a line that can be crossed where God hardens a person's heart in a final sense to the gospel of Christ. God will say that's enough. God gives them over. And this ought to be a scary reality to those who are just dating Christianity, who are just sort of playing around the edges with Christianity, thinking about coming to Christ, maybe trying to fit in on Sundays at church, but, but really have a different lifestyle throughout the rest of the week, have no love for the truth. This is a dangerous place to be because you don't know when God will close the door and will no longer give you an opportunity. Several years ago, a friend of mine told me as I was trying to influence him and give him a Christian book, he said, well, Joe, someday I'll be serious about my faith. So someday I'll, I'll be like you, but, but right now there's just too much fun to be had. I've got too much other things that I'd rather do. Well, I'm still waiting for that man, and he's not come. And I wonder if he'll ever come, and I hope for his sake it's not too late. He's just kind of looking at Christianity, yeah, it's good, but not, not for me, not right now. Don't let that be you. Don't let that be you. So this is the downward progression. Step one, past rejection of the gospel. Step two, it's this present work of delusion from the Lord. And then step three in verse 12 is a future work of judgment. Verse 12, look at it with me. In order that all may be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. So in order that, here's the final result, the final stop on the downgrade. It's judgment, condemnation. The final consequence for their sins is divine condemnation. God is behind this judgment. He's, he's the divine actor carrying it out. Paul does not spell out here what this final condemnation will be or what entails, but he does so in chapter 1. He's already done so. If you back up to chapter 1, we can see what he says about this. Chapter 1, verse 6 Paul writes, For after all, it's only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. That's, the, that's what's coming. That is the judgment, eternal destruction. And looking back at chapter 2, verse 12, here, rather than focusing on the details of that judgment, which he's already covered, Paul rather continues to elaborate on the recipients of this condemnation. Now, those who will be condemned are emphasized here in an antithetical matter, with a negative and a positive. They did not believe the truth, and they took pleasure in wickedness. Either a person will believe the truth, 
or they will take pleasure in wickedness. These are mutually exclusive ideas. You cannot believe the truth and take pleasure in wickedness. To believe the truth is synonymous with the earlier phrase, receiving the love of the truth, that we found in verse 10. So believing the truth, receiving the love of the truth. And again, throughout this passage, the truth refers to the gospel. So those who reject the gospel and simultaneously take pleasure in wickedness, these are the ones whom God will condemn. And we say, well, are these two things necessarily go together? Rejecting the truth and engaging in wickedness, delighting in wickedness, is a rejection of the gospel always accompanied with a delight in wickedness? Well, I believe it is. A similar statement is found in the description of love given to us in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 6, it says, Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Rejoicing with the truth coincides with rejoicing in righteousness. And here again, we find terms of affection, terms of celebration. Either one will revel in the truth, and he, or he will revel in unrighteousness. Love for evil will keep someone from the truth and the love of the truth. According to the Apostle John, this is universally true. Again, in John 3, he wrote this. This is the judgment, that light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. So, so we'd say, yes, in, in this life there are two options. Either a person will love the light, they will love the truth and rejoice in the truth and receive the love of the truth so as to be saved, or they will hate the light and they'll refuse to come to the light and they will take pleasure in wickedness. There's only two options. Knowing the light of the gospel, for some, they, they refuse to come to it because they know necessarily if they did come to it, it would expose their own wickedness. Therefore, they're repulsed by the light of the gospel. So again, there is no neutral, neutral ground. One cannot simply be ambivalent toward the gospel. Either you will love it or you will hate it. And consequently, you will either love or hate God's righteousness. The disciple of Christ delights to do the Lord's will. He loves the truth. He loves God's law. He, the disciple of Christ, with the Spirit of God living inside of him, has a holy inclination to love what is righteous and love the truth. And since this is always true, love for the truth and love for the righteousness serve as identity markers of a Christian. A Christian will love the truth, and they will love righteousness. Thus, Jesus can say things like, you will know them by their fruits, in Matthew chapter 7 and John, or in Luke 6. And Jesus himself said, my yoke is easy, my teaching, my instruction is easy, and my burden is light. For all those who would come and follow me, you will come to see that you love the truth, and it's good for you. You'll love it. You'll love to bear my yoke. It's the joy of the believer to obey God. He desires obedience, and he delights in God's commands. So we'd say a, a trademark of a, of a Christian is an enjoyment of God's law, God's commands, God's will for his life. Just as an example of this, consider Psalm 119 alone. In Psalm 119, the psalmist nine times 
nine times speaks of delighting in God's commandments or God's law. He says this in verse 6, I shall delight in your statutes and I shall not forget your word. In verse 24, your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. In verse 35, make me walk in the path of your commandments for I delight in it. Verse 47, I shall delight in your commandments, which I love. Verse 70, I delight in your law. Verse 77, may your compassion come to me that I may live, for, for your law is my delight. Verse 92, if your law had not been my delight, then I would have perished in my affliction. 143, trouble and anguish have come upon me, yet your commandments are my delight. Verse 174, I long for your salvation, O Lord. Your law is my delight. Your, your commandments, your, your righteousness, your righteous way, I, I love it. I agree that it is good and I want to walk in it. My heart desires that path. That's where I want to be. You see, the person who has been truly regenerated by the Spirit of God and is indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God will esteem God's righteousness. They'll love God's ways. They'll treasure the commands of God. A love for the truth of the gospel naturally corresponds with a love for righteousness. These two things go together. And conversely, a love for wickedness becomes a trademark of those who will not receive a love of the truth, who reject the truth, and are headed for eternal perdition. In 1 Timothy 3, 4, Paul refers to them as lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Such lovers of wickedness, lovers of pleasure are really crowded on the way to eternal destruction. They go on in their love for evil, indulging in their own sinful desires, afraid of the light, not willing to come to the light, lest their evil deeds be exposed and they be held accountable. So they reject the truth, they suppress the truth, and they continue on in their love for evil. So that is the progression. The The first step is a rejection of the gospel. And they reject it enough times, and God says, okay, enough's enough. Here comes a, a work of delusion, a confusing, hardening to the truth, which culminates then in divine condemnation for those who choose to delight in wickedness, take pleasure in wickedness, and reject the truth. For the individual, God oversees this process. He's over it all. He sees and moves them onward in this downward progression. But at the end of the day, from a human perspective, Man is responsible. He's responsible for his salvation. And if he desires to stop this progression, what he must do is repent. He must bring his life under the truth. He must recognize his own sinfulness and his need for a Savior. And he must cry out in humble repentance and come to God and submit himself as a slave of Christ. Honoring God as being true and himself as entirely false in and of himself and needing a Savior. That's what a sinner must do. And I guess for each one of us, we must ask ourselves, what do we delight in? Where is our heart? Where is your treasure? Do you delight in evil and wickedness and doing what you want to do? Or do you delight in God's word and in his truth? And have you received the love of the truth into your own heart? Do you see how good and how gracious God was to you in the Lord Jesus Christ? And will you accept his free gift of salvation as 
what is the greatest possible good for you on this planet. You need a Savior. We all do. And you must come and you must delight in the truth that God is so good to save sinners like us. So with that thought in mind, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this truth. We thank you for your sovereignty and salvation, how you're, you're in absolute control of all those who had come to you. You have ordained all things. We know that from eternity past, you've elected some for salvation. We know this. We see it in Ephesians 2. And yet, also men are responsible to believe the truth. We see this also in Scripture. We, we are responsible. Lord, and we know as these passages have laid out that there comes a point where people have rejected the gospel long enough and you just give them over. And they've, they've chosen to love their wickedness, so you give them over to greater and greater love and evil representations of the desires of their own hearts. And Father, we just pray that that wouldn't be true of any here in our midst. But we pray that you would grant them the grace of repentance that is described in Ephesians 2.4, that you would cause them to be awakened from the dead spiritually. I pray that you'd grant them the conviction of sin so that they would see their great need for salvation. Would they recognize the danger that they live in? Being just a, a moment away, just a car crash away from death and standing before God and being judged for their life. I pray that you would burden them for their own soul. Would you inflict them because of their rebellion against you then make them see their own need for Christ? And for those of us who have come to Christ and have found salvation in Christ, we cannot brag about it. We just rejoice in it. And we just love it. We, we love the fact that you have saved us. We, we recognize that we did nothing. You saved us. And so our heart's desire is to praise and worship you and to revel in the truth of God. I just pray that you'd make the truth of the gospel and the truth of your word just reverberate in our hearts over and over again so that it would come out of our mouths, that we'd be a witnessing people proclaiming to all this gospel that we so love and this God who has so worked to save sinners like us. We pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen.